Waiting and anticipating is something that we are pretty familiar with in our culture. Just think about some of the different ways that people time their waiting or they anticipate their waiting. Uh, when, some, when you hear someone uh, who's going to have a new baby, you ask the question, when are you due? What's your due date? And then uh, as you see, as you watch this process take place, the gift of a new life, there's terms like, what trimester are you in? Uh, people who go to school and go to a lot of school will say, I have three quarters left, or I have uh, one and a half semesters left. Uh, at Christmas time, we ask the question, how many shopping days are left? And just if you're wondering, that's 21. When people are engaged, there's uh, now all kinds of apps. Uh, one of them is The Knot. And uh, when, when people are engaged, they'll, they'll send out a, a save the date postcard. We have a, a wedding that I'm a part of, and that's been on our fridge to pray for this. And then on this app, they actually have like the countdown. So they, they know exactly when they're getting um, married. Uh, over Thanksgiving, Julie and I had all our family come um, uh, for three and a half days. We had 12 of us, two dogs, and our house was a mess. And it was fabulous. My, young, my oldest granddaughter is Rosie, Rose Evangeline. And if you asked Rosie how old she is, she would say three and a half. Make sure you get the half in there. She's three and a half. She's, she, can't, she can't wait. The reason I say this is because we are in Advent. Advent is a Latin word. Advent means the arrival of a significant event. We recognize that Christ has come, and it's a reminder that he will come again. I've shared this quote before. I love this quote by Augustine. He was a, a church leader. They call him a church father. And he's so helpful in this quote for giving us a lens of seeing Scripture. He said this, In the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the New Testament, the old is revealed. Think about that. In the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the New Testament, the old is revealed. Now, as, as you look at the scriptures, this might be an oversimplification, but I think it's really clear. I think it's really helpful. The Old Testament, with the overarching theme, is one of anticipation. It's one of anticipation. What was it anticipating? Well, chapters 1 and 2 is, is, is the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, everything was going fine until chapter 3, and there was the rebellion. Call it the fall, if you will, but it's stronger to call it the rebellion. And there's a promise in chapter 3 that says this. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel that says, he will crush his head and, you will, and he will have his heel bruised. He, Jesus, is doing the crushing, the heel, and, and the striking of a heel is the evil one. All anticipation. Think about, the, think about the law. Think about the history. Think about the poetry. Think about the prophets of both the major and minor prophets asking the question, when are you going to crush the head? When are you going to crush the head? It was a promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation, a descendant like stars, a blessing and a witness. But the promise, the promise would come through Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 3.16. A single seed, a single descendant. King Jesus would come 
So you go from this, you go from this anticipation to this manifestation right here. This is the one. This is the one who has come in the flesh. This is the one. And as we look at the manifestation, then from that, there is proclamation, which, which the church is doing, and then there's exclamation or explanation. Meaning what? The, the epistles from Romans through the book of Jude, Jesus' little brother, writes all of these explaining of what the body of Christ, because of this, we proclaim the good news, and now there's explanation, and Jesus' little brother in Jude, it's fascinating. In verses 22, it says this, it repeats it again, show mercy, show mercy. Why would he say that? Because that's what his big brother did all the time, amen? In the last book, the last book of the Bible is this culmination of Christ returning for us. Amazing. So all of this anticipation in the Old Testament, all of this anticipation was asked the question, when are you going to crush the head? When are you coming again? And God's promise, he said to the children of Israel, he said, I haven't forgotten you. He said to Moses, I'm going to deliver the people. He said to Joshua, I will give you the land. And then he said to David, King David, this Davidic covenant we call it, you will always have an heir who will live forever on the throne. Always. Always. And the children of Israel, when they, as we walked through the book of Isaiah, remember, there were, there were countries that came and took over them. There were the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. And God's people, waiting for the manifestation, waiting for the head crusher, would ask, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And in Jesus' day, they were waiting for the son of David. The book of Matthew Matthew repeats this again and again and again, asking the question, is this the son of David? Is this the one? Is this the ruler that will, that will, that will bring our, our country back to glory? Because in David's day, that was the glory days. In David's rule, those were the glory days. He won battles. He put enemies down. He won respect. He had wealth. There was peace. Those were the glory days. And God had promised that there would always be an heir on the throne. Are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one? Listen to what they said about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, there were two blind men yelling out, Son of David! Is he the one? There was an exorcism that was performed in Matthew chapter 12, and after the exorcism, people said, Is this the son of David? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? The head crusher! In Matthew chapter 15, there was a demon-possessed daughter and her mom who was despised as a Canaanite called him the son of David. There were Jericho men who were not only beggars but blind and they yelled out, have mercy on us. And remember that triumphant entry when they shouted, Hosanna? It literally meant, save us, rescue us. Are you the David one? Son of David. It seems in this anticipation 
that David is key. And so this message is entitled from Isaiah chapter 22, Don't Miss the Key. Don't miss the key. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles. I think you'll get more out of the sermon if you do that. To pages 603 to 604 in your pew Bible. 603 to 604. If you have your own Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 22. And here is where we're going. This, this don't missing the key, it, it's referenced in real time and real tragedy amongst two real leaders. Why does that matter? Because it's not abstract. No, not at all. The two key leaders, you will see that they will witness a midnight miracle massacre. That's a mouthful. Both of them will be witnesses. They will see the effects of a midnight miracle massacre. Sennacherib and his mighty army and overwhelming results that would have been fascinating to get up the next morning and go, whoa, God moved. And the second thing is this. We, we got to ask the, ask the question because we'll see the term, the key to the house of David. What does that mean? What does that mean? And more like not only what, but who? Who is this key of the house of David? Give you a hint. Boom. Number three. Here's the other place. We're going to ask the question, how do these keys impact me? I'm a follower of Jesus. It's Christmas time. How do these keys impact me? All right. Did you get a chance to find a copy of the scriptures? We're going to read in verse 15. You're going to meet two different people. You're going to meet a Shebna, and you're going to meet an Eliakim. Shebna represents all of Judah and their rebellion. Eliakim you will find, is a type of Christ. Scholars call chapter 22 the valley of vision. Reading in Jesus' name, verse 15. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, Go say to this steward, Shebna, the palace administrator, What are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away. Violent word, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country, and there you will die. And there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's House, if you're an ESV person, that word is, it will be a shame. I will dispose of you from your office, and you will be ousted from your position. In that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkah. I will clothe him with a robe and fasten your sash around him and, and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder, ready? The key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. 
All the glory of his family will hang on him. Its offspring is an offshoots. All its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. And you wish it stopped at verse 24, but it doesn't. It shows us that Eliakim isn't the one that we're waiting for. Verse 25, in that day declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall. And the Lord hanging on it will be cut down. And the Lord, he has spoken. Let us pray. O King Jesus, son of David and son of man, will you come and visit us now with the presence of your Holy Spirit? Give us ears to hear what you want this bride, your church, to hear, and then the grace and strength that as we scatter and leave this place, we may act in a way that glorifies and honors you. You are merciful. You are gracious. You are faithful when we are not. You are holy and incomparable. We are mere mortals and created beings, and yet you sent your Son to rescue us. So we thank you. Do your work, King. Do your work, Spirit of God. Show your power, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you to turn to your worship bulletins and maybe make some notes, go back and, and look back. And as I said, the first thing that we need to look at is we need to look at two leaders who matter. You met them, Shebna and Eliakim. They would be eyewitnesses to what I called the Midnight Massacre on 2 Kings chapter 19. If you want to turn there, you can on your pew Bible. It's page 333. This may sound a little familiar. We looked at Isaiah 36 in August of 2023, and if you want to go back and listen to that message, um, you're, you're welcome to do that August 20th, 2023. But the Midnight Massacre basically was this. The, the man, uh, the king, Sennacherib, with his Assyrian army, was overwhelming, overwhelming to the tribe of Judah. Overwhelming. Mocking them. And you read about Shebna, and you read about Eliakim, and another fellow as well too, and they were right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it, and they were without hope at all. And then God moved. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 35. Here's the midnight massacre. You ready? On page 333. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were dead bodies all around. Wow. Wow. Who did that? The Lord of the mighty armies. And, and, and what happened, the reason why this is significant is because when Shebna and Eliakim were before this massacre, they switched places. As I mentioned, Shebna represented all the unfaithfulness of God's people. And he was removed from his office and his office was given to Eliakim. And Eliakim's character was different than Shebna. Eliakim would wear the uniform of regal service, meaning what? Well, you read about it, you saw it. It was the robe, it was the sash, and perhaps something like this. Uh, scholars are debate whether it was real keys or whether it was an insignia, but the point was this. Don't miss the point. The point was this, to get to the ruler, you went through Eliakim. The point was, to get to the ruler, you went to Eliakim. 
Why does that matter? What does that look like? It looked like this. There was a switch. Shebna's office became Eliakim's office. Eliakim's office became Shebna's office. And we, we read about Shebna. He was concerned about his own interests. You see that in verse 16. He was unstable in verse 17, and he was disgraced in verse 18. Eliakim, though, was called a servant of the Lord. Who does that sound like? My king, my Lord Jesus. He was stable like a peg, and he would be honored. You might think that, that sounds kind of weird. This, does this happen much? Well, we saw it, you see it in the book of Genesis, chapter 41 through 39, or chapter 41, verses 39 through 40. It says this, uh, Joseph, this is the story of Joseph. And after he had made uh, some interpretations of visions, this, this is what Pharaoh said to Joseph. He said, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and of all my people to submit to your orders. And only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So it had happened before in the history of God's people. It had happened before. But the key is the house of David. That phrase is the house of David. Did you catch that? When, when uh, Tim led us and the, and the choir led us in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Th this was the last verse, verse 5, when Karen played this for us. O come thou key of David, come. And God's people would say, oh, please come. We've been waiting for you for so long. Open wide your heavenly home. Did that ever happen? It sure did at Pentecost. Where are all the saints with thee shall dwell. You've heard me say this before. When, when we, the saints, come into heaven, C.S. Lewis said the first words that we might say in heaven is, of course! And as we look about all those dwellers, there's probably going to be three re responses, gang. One, we will be surprised at who's there, right? We will be surprised at who's not there. And the dwellers, when we find we're there, we'll be surprised and say, I got here. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice. You might be thinking, stop rejoicing. Can you just tell us what the key is? Sure. Here's the key. As simple as I can, as clear as I can, let me put it this way. What is the key of the house of David? It's stewarded authority to act in the interest of the king. It's stewarded authority to act in the interest of the king. And this little verse is so significant. And so you ask the question, what? What's behind that? What does the key of the house of David mean? Well, as I said before, David and all he represented were the glory years. Battles won, peace with enemies, respect amongst nations. See, God had made a covenant with David. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's found on, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, page 264. 
And it says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you for when your days are over, you will rest with your ancestors. The context of this is that David wanted to build a house for the Lord and the Lord said, I'm gonna build a house from you. A house from you. He flips the script, if you will. And God's people held on to that. They held on to that. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we see that. Whether it was the Assyrians' rule, or the Babylon's rule, or the Persians' rule, God, where are you? He will always, always, always have a son on the throne. Where are you? They were expecting a David ruler. They didn't know they'd get a divine redeemer. This verse, David writes this. David writes this. These are his words. And he writes Psalm 110, verse 11. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that was puzzling. This verse comes up in Matthew's account when Jesus is in front of the Sanhedrin. This verse comes up when Peter preaches the very first sermon of the Christian church in Acts chapter 2. And it's significant for this reason. This was a stumbling block. This was a stumbling block. The Lord, the literal word, means Yahweh. It's his covenant name. It means I am. The Yahweh said to my Lord, this is David talking. David, who's your Lord? You're the king. The word Lord there is Adonai or master. Master. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who is this Lord that even David said, he's my master? Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Wow. Jesus did not come as we expected him. When the crowds yelled out at at Palm Sunday, they said, Hosanna, which means save us. Rescue us, son of David. Rescue us from Rome. Rescue us from the situation we're in. Rescue us. And Jesus very well could have said, I will, but not as you expected. I will save you from the penalty of your sins, but I have to die. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is in the heart. I will send my spirit to you. No matter the hardship, I have not forgotten you. That was the house of David. Why was, why was the house of David? What is so special about David? Was he a hero? Uh, yeah. He's holding Goliath's head. Not bad. Was he a model king? Well, the national symbol for Israel is what? The star of David. But if you'd ask that question, you probably want to ask, Uriah, who he murdered. And why didn't you ask Bathsheba, who, had, who, had, who he had sexually his way? David's a mess, like you and me. Martin Luther called this being both a sinner and a saint. Uh, I was going to impress you with my Latin, but I better not. We're a sinner and a saint at the same time. God's promise is based on his faithfulness. It's not David's resume. Just like you and me. 
We are saved by grace, not of yourselves that anyone should boast. It is a gift of God that motivates and changes us. See how the Spirit changes you. Is your countenance kinder? Are your words sweeter? Are your actions more reflective of Jesus? Or are you being the best version of your broken and sinful self? It starts there. Remember the one who has the keys has the authority of David in his domain. It's stewarded authority to act in the interest of the king. Stewarded authority to act as the interest of the king. So I've got to ask you, friend, <clears throat> as you pause and ponder, has you, have you put your faith in the son of a, greater, of, a, of a greater son from David? In Jesus. Is Jesus a man? Absolutely. He certainly is. Totally. He has a nose. He has a hair. His eyes twinkle. He's also 100% true God. Tempted like us, you bet, in every way. But he didn't know sin. He never gave in to sin or selfishness. Mercy. He's, always, he's mercy and just, and he won't let you down. For six hours, he experienced all of the damnation of sin, and he took it upon himself. And he is faithful, and he is forgiving, and he is truly heroic in his love for us. He is the king of kings that we need and have what would it be like, what would it be like to meet someone who's anticipating and waiting all of their lives, who would sing with us, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Emmanuel has come. He came to Israel, and then he came to Europe through Paul's word, Work And he, he, he came to Africa through the Ethiopian ruler in Acts chapter 8. And God has come to Chad and to Taiwan and to Madagascar. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So how do the keys impact me? You can hear all this and think this is an interesting Bible story, but there's, there's a place for you and I, friend. There's two different places that we hear these word keys. One is in Matthew chapter 16 on page 842. Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I will give you, listen, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, there's all kinds of different interpretations of that, right? Some of us have friends who are Catholics, and they look at this as being Peter, the declaration for Peter that on Peter and his apostolic leadership, that will be built on, uh, on, on Peter, okay? We respect that. We hear that. We may not agree with it, but we hear that. It's our understanding, different ways of, the, of understanding the keys it is the key to proclaiming the gospel. People dig into that. Lutherans will dig into that and say those keys are law, gospel, how we preach. God gives us the ability to join him by his spirit through the preaching of the word of God with the many gifts and the sharing of God's word to set people free from their sins. 
and to let them know that they can be set free from their sins. I, I, I had this experience. I was at Bible camp, and I was teaching. I, I teach a, a retreat every other year on the, Lord's, uh, on the Lord's Prayer, and we invited middle school and high school students to come to the cross, to write their, write their sins down on a piece of paper, and then submit it. And, uh, and, and they came up to the stage. This is at the camp, at the old camp, and, and students would come, and we would pray for students as they would come. And I, I heard my friend, Pastor Tom, say to a young man, he said, based on the authority of the word of God and the finished work of Christ, young man, your sins are forgiven. I went, whoa. You know, he's praying, and I'm peeking, and I'm thinking to myself, you can say that? That sounds Catholic to me. That's absolution. He said, Kirk, did you hear what I said? Based on the authority, on the word of God, and the finished work of Christ, your sins are forgiven. That friend will set people free. Christ did that for me. There's a second place. There's a second place that we, that we see the keys used. The, how did, in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it, the context is seven churches. This is church six. This is the Philadelphia church. There's seven churches. Only two are not given a word of rebuke. Philadelphia is the second of the two. In this church, Jesus is seen as the holy one. And notice what he does. He holds the keys. In our, in our children's ministries, Pastor John uh, Weil and, and Dory uh, use this language called the big who and the little who. The big who is God the Father. The little who is we're the who's. And in this passage, we see the who is he. The he is who. The he is the big who. So these are the words of him, the big who, who is holy and true, who the big who holds the key of David. What he, the big who, opens, no one can shut. And what the big who shuts, no one can open. If you're confused about the who and the he, I get it. But don't be confused about he who shuts and opens. And what that means. The power to determine eternal destiny is David's greater son. The Holy One. He has authority that cannot be reversed and so we live expectantly. As a congregation, we often will say the Apostles' Creed. We'll have communion next week. And uh, we will say the Apostles' Creed. We will stand. But we also uh, subscribe to the Nicene Creed. And you'll see the small little tweak or addition that comes on to the Nicene Creed. Look at what it says. He will come again. We use that in the Apostles' Creed. But with the Nicene Creed, it says, with glory. The Nicene Creed's add, with glory. What does that mean? That's another sermon. To judge the living and the dead. And then the Nicene Creed says, his kingdom will never end. What would it be like to see someone who is uh, living that way, anticipating the coming of the king? What would that be like? We meet someone. We meet someone in Luke chapter, chapter 2 who had been waiting all his life for 
this significant event to come. Scripture, uh, church tradition says that, that when Simeon, who is a righteous man, saw Jesus come with his parents on that eighth day to be dedicated, tradition says that he ran. He ran over the temple, across the temple, and picked up the child. And then he said this <coughs> in Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, he said this, he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation. What does that mean? It means to be close besides. And the word is paraclesis, which means it's used of the Lord to motivate someone, inspire a believer, and it is shaped by the individual context and it can be an exhortation, it can be a warning, it can be encouragement. Where are you at with the king this Christmas season? Do you need a warning? Do you need encouragement? Do you need comfort? Do you need exhortation? This one can provide it. Love, love. Karen, thanks, wherever you are. Uh, Karen Quant, where you were directing. Thanks for that word that we had. I want your presence in Christmas. I want your presence in Christmas. You see the word play on that? Didn't know if that was intentional or not, but that was really good. Thanks for that reminder. Let's pray. Oh, King. Oh, great King. We don't want to miss you. In all the busyness and all the stuff, we don't want to miss you. Uh, for, for us, Lord, you've given us this incredible responsibility of the keys given to us to declare, to declare the forgiveness of sins. It won't always be that way. But for now, as we proclaim and we exp explain, we thank you for this trust. We love you, Lord. And now, Spirit of God, you are the Pericles, do your work, exhort your people, warn your people, encourage your people, comfort your people. In Christ's name, amen.